If you can, go ahead and turn to Matthew. We're going to open up the scriptures. And last week we talked about Christmas communion. The idea there last week, talking about Christmas communion, was just that when Jesus said to remember him, uh, he said to remember him kind of at the center of the story, the crux of the story, where he was redeeming us by being uh, a sacrificial lamb, by, by dying, uh, by atoning for our sins with his death. All sorts of religious language, but it all hits at the same thing, that what Jesus is doing here is revolutionizing the world, and we who are far from God are all of a sudden going to be brought near. And when he says, remember me, that's kind of what he wanted us to remember. So last week we talked about communion. This year I want to, or this year, I, uh, I, I was sick last night, fever, chills, fever, chills, didn't sleep at all. Matt almost got a call this morning at 7.30, which would have made his hair turn white. Um, but I had to come tell you guys about the budget, so I <laughs> drug myself out of bed. And uh, anyways, if I'd say weird things, at like 5 in the morning, in my mind, I was talking about politics all of a sudden in this service, which probably would be a bad idea. But there's a bunch of political things that kind of had me fired up yesterday. Maybe they'll come out. I don't know. Um, but I'm not to be held responsible for anything. The, uh, we're going to look at chapter 2 here. And, and um, honestly, I, the reason I got out of bed this morning is because I've been, this is what I've been wanting to talk about for three weeks. Uh, I, <laughs> Just, I'm not going to be able to do a great job, but hopefully we can get the ideas out there enough. But what we're talking about this morning is Christmas Christology. Christmas Christology. The word Christology is just taking the word logos and, and putting it with something. It really means the study of something. So theology, um, theos is the Greek word for God, so it's the study of God. Uh, eschatology, the word eschatos is, is the word for last. So eschatology is the study of of last things or end times. Um, Christology is the study, the focus on the person and work of Christ, just focusing on who Christ is. And that's kind of what I want to do this morning. So chapter 2 of Matthew, let's read kind of this Christmas passage. Chapter 2, verse 1, it says this, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. It's about nine kilometers from Jerusalem. Okay, so town of David, nine kilometers from Jerusalem. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. For that is what the prophet has written Micah 5.2, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Okay, so Herod hears where the kid's going to be born. And, and he calls the Magi secretly. And he says, find, uh, to find out the exact time the star had appeared to them. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. And as soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. And after they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed. 
And on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. And then if we skip down just a little bit to verse 16, it says this, When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. This passage is fascinating to me because you see two two subjects, the, the Magi and King Herod, you see two subjects focused on the same object, Christ, uh, this baby in a manger. And they both share one thing in common, but then they also respond to it in two radically different ways. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is the two subjects, so these Magi who are coming and this king, King Herod, they both respond to Christ as a king. They both respond to Christ as a king. They both react, though, or or manifest their response to him as a king in two totally different ways. The Magi worship him. King Herod sees him as a threat and tries to kill him. Now, King Herod, Herod the Great, he's the one that built the temple that when Jesus was older would have been the temple he was walking around in. Uh, He would have died either 4 B.C. or 1 B.C., kind of right in that range, um, just shortly after Jesus was born. And he was a ruthless ruler, all about power, all about remaining in power, all about himself. uh, And the idea of this king of the Jews was a threat to him. And so his action was to try and kill all of these babies that could have been the one to guard or ensure that there was going to be no challenge to his authority. He saw Jesus as a threat. The Magi, now Magi, by the way, uh, the word Magi means kind of priests of Zoroaster, Zoroastrianism. Um, from the east, they were into uh, astrology, studying the stars. Because of that, we get the word magic from Magi and, and the astrology that they were into. So very much a, a thing in that time where Magi would have seen the stars, where they would have gone to try and um, be where kings were born. And so these Magi, it's not... Um, three kings, the Catholic Church over time began to call them three kings, but it's literally three priests of Zoroaster, and there's, it doesn't say how many there are, but there's three gifts, so they extrapolate from that, you know, three individuals, but it could have been a group that are bringing three gifts, and those gifts were typical of bringing to someone who's becoming a king. A um, hundred years before Christ, you, you, you see in writing, uh, different people coming and laying at the feet of kings, uh, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So it's, it's this kind of thing. This is the way it is. Now, the later church would take and make all of those things a symbol. The myrrh symbolizes kind of the, the anointing because Jesus is going to die, and the gold symbolizes this, and the frankincense symbolizes this. And so you see a real allegorical way of interpreting it. So the, the song, we Three, uh, we Three Kings, I love it. It's on our Christmas CD, but... Um, it's not three kings, it's three magi. 
And in that song, you can see kind of the allegorical method of taking those different gifts and applying them in a spiritual way. But these, these magi are coming, and they believe that the king of the Jews is being born, and they are coming uh, to worship him. And as I kind of thought about this more and more, it brought me back to a passage that I've wrestled with for a long time. And if you turn to it in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says this. He's kind of on one of his rants. And and Jesus says in chapter 12, verse 30, he says, He who is not with me is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. He who is not with me is against me. Now, that passage always was interesting to me because I don't really see that to be true in American Christianity. I don't, I don't see this either-or-ness of the person of Christ, that you're either with him or against him, that, that we really understand it at that level. I think we're over here on kind of option C where, at least in our minds, we see it as uh, apathetic. You know, I'm not against you, Jesus. I'm not really for you either, but, you know, I just, I just, I just don't care. I'm just, I'm just choosing to kind of put you in a category where you're, you're in a nice little box, and that's cool, and you can be there. But, but it's not that I'm against you. You know, and I, and, you know I'm not a Jesus freak, whatever, but I'm, I'm just I'm doing my life over here. I'm just doing my thing. And we kind of have this category where we're kind of apathetic, and we treat Jesus as if, the idea of him being king has no effect on us such that it, 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 it demands of us this either-or reaction. Does that make sense? It's almost as, as if like Hugo Chavez from Venezuela said, I really don't like Ken Weitzma. I, and I really don't care, Hugo. You just go on with your dictator self and, you know. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't care I don't care. It has nothing to do with my life. What you, even though you're a dictator or a king or whatever you want to call yourself, even though you have that kind of authority or the title, it just doesn't mean anything to me. And that's kind of where I think we are. There's a book in the 90s called Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it was kind of a critique of American culture, the amount of TV we watch, the amount of entertainment we, we take in. It was almost saying that Aldous Huxley's The Brave New World Anyone ever read that, Brave New World? It was amazing way back when, like, everybody's watching these, what's called the feelies, which was kind of the movies, and popping these, these pills called soma, which is a Greek word for body, but popping these, these pills, drugging themselves and watching these feelies, and they just, that was, that was their existence. And it's like, you know, half a century later, it's like there we are just being entertained and amusing ourselves to death, and it's kind of this crazy thing, but I just, I just think we're apathetic. And we can't be because that's not open to us. Jesus isn't just a baby in a manger. He's not this baby that we can come and, you know, during Christmas, you know, go, oh, isn't it cute? Um, and just kind of shrug our shoulders and go on with our life. This baby in a manger was also king. And so in terms of Christology, there's three things, if you want to write them down, that Jesus was. Three roles that he had, three titles that he had. But the first one was prophet. 
And the idea there is that Jesus was a truth teller. He came and he told the truth about God. He was a prophet. The second one is priest. And priest literally means a mediator between God and and man. That he goes between God. He allows us to connect with God. And the third one, and if you go to the book of Hebrews, by the way, and, and read the book of Hebrews, it's a phenomenal articulation of this throughout the book of Hebrews, just the roles that Jesus had. But the third one is that Jesus was king. He was a king in the line of David. He's king in terms of authority. And so when this baby was born, what Herod realized, what the Magi realized, that is, if he is king, it is either a joy or a delight or a threat. But it's, it cannot be some third category where it doesn't mean anything. If he really has authority, claim to your life, if he really is king, then it's either a delight to joy or it's a threat. I remember when I realized, I was 22 when I started reading the Gospel of John and reading another book and just saying, God, if you exist, you've got to show me that you're real. And as I was doing this for a couple months, I was you know, co-oping as an engineer at this town called Greenwood, South Carolina. Greenwood, South Carolina you just want to forget you've ever heard of it because there's no reason to remember it. But I was working for this company called Schlumberger and there's nothing in this town except for this, this big kind of fa- um, factory. I mean, they manufactured flow meters. It was pretty cool stuff. But I'm reading for months, just trying to, trying to reflect, like, is there a God? You know, God, if you're real, show, show yourself. And somewhere along that line, I began to realize that if, if there really was a God and if Jesus really was who he claimed to be, that that absolutely changed everything about my life. That I would no longer be my own. That if I came to the conclusion that, that God really existed and that Jesus really was who he said he was, then I, I began to realize the implications were I was no longer in control of my own life. And that's the idea of Jesus being king, being over, sovereign. So I want to read a couple things to you real quick just to try and get this out. Um, C.S. Lewis, we're going we're gonna to kind of do story time with C.S. Lewis today. I haven't done that in a while. It's time. Did any of you see the, uh, any of you see Voyage of the Dawn Treader yet? Nobody, really? A couple? The young at heart. Nice. Um, this is C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, but this is the end of his apologetic sec- section where he's kind of arguing for who Jesus is, the person of Jesus. And listen to what he says here. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. Jesus is my homeboy. He's a cool hippie that I like. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. Do you guys get that? If you claim to be the Son of God, you claim to be the King and to have all authority in heaven and earth. If you're wrong about that and you know you're wrong, you're a lunatic. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. 
He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. He's either crazy or he's a crazy deceiver. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Let me read one more, one more passage again from Mere Christianity. For when you get down to it, is not the popular idea of Christianity simply this, that Jesus Christ was a great moral teacher, and that if only we took his advice, we might be able to establish a better social order and avoid another war? Now, mind you, that is quite true, but it tells you much less than the whole truth about Christianity, and it has no practical importance at all. We're kind of in this idea that Jesus is an anecdotal figure and he, he provides moral encouragement. He's, he's the great coach in the sky. He, he loves to affirm us. He's like a, a universal Oprah that's everywhere smiling at you and, and, and clapping you on. And when we get to Christmas, it's the saddest thing of all because we begin to attribute to Christmas in every movie we watch, the TV shows, we begin to attribute to Christmas that Christmas has some kind of power to change people. Do you know what I'm saying? That we get to Christmas in the spirit of Christmas, the idea of Christmas somehow makes the scales fall off and you go from being a, a, a bad person to a good person or a, or a mean person to a kind person or a, a, a stingy person to this generous person and somehow fundamentally the, the core of who you are, the fabric of who you are, the spirit of Christmas is just going to melt it away and you're going to become a better person. And what we're doing is we're kind of deluding ourselves. We all know what it would mean to be better. We all know what it would mean to, in some sense, be changed. And we, we love that we kind of all get together and have group think during Christmas that this is going to change us. But there's only one thing and only one person in this world that fundamentally can alter the, the core of who you are. Do you, you guys get what I'm saying? Just like feverish ranting. My wife and I talk a lot about how people don't change. Because I'm a pessimist that way. Most people do not change. And the biggest illusion in this world is that you can change another person. If, if somebody's going to change, there's only one person in this world that you can change, and it's yourself. And you know how yourself gets changed? It's changed by submitting to Christ and allowing Christ to do a work in you. The closer you come to Christ, the more you become like Christ. But this idea, this notion of us pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps or us being able to, on the externals, do anything that gets to the core of a, who a person is, the ruts, the deep channels, it's an illusion. The value that we have for Antioch, I love coming every Sunday and seeing a bunch of people here. I love it. 
But we believe, the elders believe, firmly believe that just playing around with externals is never going to change anybody, never going to help anybody. That it really is 100% about discipleship. Discipleship is this. It's somebody being willing to lay down their agenda to, to learn about Christ, to grow in Christ, and to allow other people the authority to speak into that. That's discipleship. The degree to which you are willing to pursue God through scripture reading, through prayer, through spiritual disciplines, to say no to temptations, the ruts that you're on, the things that you want, but you say no to it anyways because you want to grow in Christ. The degree to which you are willing to, to, to uh, undertake that and allow other people to speak into your life, that's discipleship. That alone is going to change people. When I was a youth pastor, I used to always read from John chapter 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine and you're the branches. If you remain in me, you can bear much fruit. So Jesus is a vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me, you can bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So I used to tell parents and I used to tell the church, look, my whole job here is not one more game of Chubby Bunny where kids choke on marshmallows and have a good time. My whole job here is to take high school kids and to shove them as far into this vine as I can get them so that they may grow and become more Christ-like. Apart from that, anything I do is just worthless. Does that make sense? Okay, so I want to read to you, because better than anything else in literature, I think Lewis gets at this in The Voyage of the Dawn Star. So I went and saw the movie the other day, and I was really upset, because they completely butchered this part. I mean, they didn't even have it, um, like to this degree. I mean, they didn't really draw out the implications. But, so I'm going to set the record straight and read it to you. But I want you to grapple with this idea that you cannot save yourself. You cannot change yourself. That this Christ who is king is the only one who can change us if we submit to him and allow him to work in our life. Listen to uh, what goes on in the Dawn Treader. So this is one of the Narnia books. It begins, I've got to read the beginning because it's one of the best beginnings to a book ever. Sorry, Dickens. So this is how it begins. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub. And he almost deserved it. His parents called him Eustace Clarence, and masters called him Scrub. I can't tell you how his friends spoke to him, for he had none. And then it kind of goes on. So there's this miserable wretch of a kid called Clarence Eustace Scrub, or Eustace Clarence Scrub. And now he ends up in Narnia uh, with Edmund and Lucy. And so he's in Narnia. They're on the Don Treader, and they're, they're voyaging, and they come to Dragon Island. And Eustace sees all the dragon treasure, and Eustace goes in and he puts this ring on his arm, and when he wakes up, he's become the dragon. There's kind of a mystical thing that Lewis brings in from kind of mythology, um, the one dragon kind of being dead and, and this turning the next thing into the dragon or whatever. Um, but Lewis is trying, what he's really trying to do is he's trying to draw out an analogy where he's showing that this kid who was really beastly on the inside, um, Lewis is turning him into a figure that, that on the outside represents who he really was on the inside. Do you get it? Okay, so he becomes this dragon. He, uh, it breaks him. He realizes he's a dragon, and he, he feels completely afraid, lost. Um, and then one day, he, he's the little boy again. 
And uh, he comes up to Edmund, and he wants to tell Edmund the story. He says, Edmund, can I talk to you? And Eustace wants to tell him the story. And here's where we pick it up. It says this, I won't tell you how I became a dragon until I can tell the others and get it all over, said Eustace. By the way, I didn't even know I was a dragon until I heard you all using the word when I turned up here the other morning. I want to tell you how I stopped being one. Fire ahead, said Edmund. Well, last night I was more miserable than ever, and that beastly arm ring was hurting like anything. Is that all right now? Eustace laughed, a different laugh from any Edmund had heard him give before, and slipped the bracelet easily off his arm. There it is, he said, and anyone who likes can have it as far as I'm concerned. Well, as I say, I was lying awake and wondering what on earth would become of me. And then, but mind you, it may have been a, all a dream. I, I don't know. Go on, said Edmund with considerable patience. Well, anyway, I looked up and I saw the very last thing I expected, a huge lion coming slowly toward me. And one queer thing was that there was no moon last night, but there was moonlight where the lion was. So it came nearer and nearer, and I was terribly afraid of it. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was just afraid of it, if you can understand. Well, it came close up to me and looked straight into my eyes, and I shut my eyes tight, but that wasn't any good because it told me to follow it. You mean it spoke? I don't know, now that you mention it. I don't think it did, but it told me all the same. Have, have, have you ever read the Chronicles of Narnia, by the way? It's like the most theology you'll ever get packed into a children's literature. So if you ever wondered, like, when people talk about how does God speak to you, you know? And do you hear a voice? Do you not hear a voice? You read the Chronicles of Narnia, you kind of figure it out. So there you go. Now that you mention it, I don't think it did, but it told me all the same. And I knew I'd have to do what it told me, so I got up and I followed it, and it led me a long way into the mountains. And there was always this moonlight over and around the line, wherever we went. So at last we came to the top of a mountain I'd never seen before, and on top of this mountain there was a garden, trees and fruit and everything. And in the middle of it there was a, a well. I knew it was a well because you could see the water bubbling up from the bottom of it, but it was a lot bigger than most wells like a very big round bath with marble steps going down into it. The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain of my leg. When he put the ring on as a boy, when he became a dragon, the ring pinched on him. But the lion told me I must, I must undress first. Mind you, I don't know if he said any words out loud or not. I was just going to say that I couldn't undress because I hadn't any clothes on, when I suddenly thought that dragons are snaky sort of things and snakes can cast their skins. Oh, of course, thought I, that's what the lion means. So I started scratching myself and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper and instead of just scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started peeling off beautifully like it does after an illness or as if I was a banana. And in a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying there beside me looking rather nasty. It was a most lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well for my bath. But just as I was going to put my feet into the water, I looked down and saw that they were all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as they had been before. Oh, that's all right, said I. 
It only means add another smaller suit on underneath the first one, and I'll have to get out of, out of it too. So I scratched and tore again, and this underskin peeled off beautifully, and out I stepped and left it lying beside the other one and went down to the well for my bath. Well, exactly the same thing happened again. And I thought to myself, oh dear, however many skins have I got to take off, for I was longing to bathe my leg. So I scratched away the third time, and I got off the third skin, just like the two others, and stepped out of it. But as soon as I looked at myself in the water, I knew it had been no good. And then the lion said, But I don't know if it spoke. You will have to let me undress you. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling off the skin, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like bilio, but it is such fun to see it coming away. I know exactly what you mean, said Edmund. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, as smooth and soft as a peeled switch and smaller than I had been. Then he caught a hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone from my arm. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. You'd think me simply phony if I told you how I felt about my own arms. I know they've no muscles and they are pretty moldy compared with Caspian's. But I was so glad to see them. And after a bit, the lion took me out and dressed me. Dressed you? With his paws? Well, I don't exactly remember that bit, but he did somehow or other in new clothes, the same I've got on now, as a matter of fact. And then suddenly, I was back here, which is what makes me think it must have been a dream. No, it wasn't a dream, said Edmund. Why not? Well, there are the clothes, for one thing, and you have been, well undragoned for another. What do you think of it then, asked Eustace. I think you've seen Aslan, said Edmund. Aslan, said Eustace. I've heard that name mentioned several times since we joined the Don Treader, and I felt, I don't know what, I hated it. But I was hating everything then. And by the way, I'd like to apologize. I'm afraid I've been pretty beastly. I'll just stop there. Do you kind of begin to get the story? When Jesus is who Jesus is, when we understand who Jesus is, when we understand that Jesus is king, there are really only two reactions. We see it the way Herod did as a threat. It's a threat to our life. It's a threat to our decisions. It's a threat to our pocketbook. 
It's a threat to our relationships. It's a threat to how we want to spend our time. It's a threat to the things that sometimes we want to take pleasure in. It's a threat to control and sovereignty over where we're going in life. It's a threat. And we don't want it. And we hate it. And not only that, but we probably hate everything else. Or we understand that Christ is king and that changes everything. And we submit under that, to that, and we allow Christ to rip away at the old self, replace it with the new self. And as we're there submitted to that, he makes us new and he dresses us in his robes of righteousness. That's religious talk. Um, sick enough that I can't translate it into normal talk, so I'm talking religious talk now. But the idea of being new, being somebody different, that ideal self that we've always been chasing, we know that we're not quite who we, we wish we were. We're on our best day when we score good at golf, like that we're not that all the time. That sense we get of I'm not who I'm supposed to be. That's what Christ deals with. Let me just read you a quote, if I could. A.W. Tozier said this, What I believe about God is the most important thing about me. What I believe about God is the most important thing about me. Who we take Christ to be is a very urgent matter. When we get lulled into this kind of apathetic distancing ourselves of Christ and we just put him in a box and we just tame him over on the side and we kind of neglect the idea that he is who he is and that there's a calling on our life because of that, when we kind of go our own way, we've missed the boat. We, um, we think that Jesus is just a baby in a manger. And we do Christmas the way culture tells us to do Christmas because it's fun or because it's neat or because of whatever. Now I want you to imagine something with me. Do you know that $470 billion gets spent on uh, Christmas every year? $470 billion. If you just took all the extra Starbucks drinks that we buy while we're out shopping out of that, you'd still have like $469 billion. It's a lot of money. Okay, I want you to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine the world, and I want you to imagine what Christmas looks like and that $470 billion being sent, being marketed, being foisted, culture drawing you into this, the consumerism of it all. And I want you to put Santa Claus right in the middle of it. Do you get that? Fits, doesn't it? Santa seats himself well with that picture of Christmas. I want you to take Santa out of that picture, that network, that web of what Christmas looks like, cultural consumer Christmas. I want you to take Santa out of that picture, and I want you to take Jesus as king who has authority, who knows what he wants to have happen in this world, who cares about a certain kind of thing going on in this world. And I want you to plug Jesus into the middle of that. Close your eyes, just picture it. What changes? Everything changes. 
everything changes. I have some friends at Imago Day that have this thing they do called Advent Conspiracy, and I love one of the taglines for it. Want to know what it is? Worship more, spend less. Worship more, spend less. If you take Jesus and plug him into the center of that whole web, all of a sudden it all begins to change, doesn't it? You put Santa back in, fits Jesus in. Now I want you to kind of look at it this way. The Christmas spirit is this. Here's a couple things I've identified from the movies. I kind of thought through all the different movies that had the Christmas spirit in them. This is what's supposed to be different about you during Christmas. You're supposed to have a better attitude. Uh, You're supposed to forgive people. People that have wronged you during Christmas, you're supposed to forgive them. You're supposed to be generous in ways that you're not typically generous. You're supposed to be benevolent and care about everybody. What drives that, though? What makes that work? If in November you weren't forgiving somebody, what makes you forgive them in December? If you were a miser in November, what makes you in December all of a sudden generous? If you didn't really care about justice or other people in November, what makes you all of a sudden have deep within you the passion, the desire, the commitment to care about those people? I mean, what drives that? Here's the answer to the degree that it's real and it's not just smoke and mirrors. It's Christ who drives that. It's being torn into until the old self falls away and and we're redressed into a new self and we're taken in a different direction. To the degree that we really are able to forgive, it's because Christ forgave us. To the the degree that we're able to have grace or or, uh, love on others, it's because Christ loved us first. To the degree that we are able to care about justice and fight injustice, it's because Christ did for us what we could not do for ourselves when we were lost and um, oppressed and abandoned. And so we look at other people like that and we say, we want to do what Christ did for us for those. When, when we do those things authentically, it's because it first happens from Christ. And this Christmas spirit, it's a good movie. And, it, and it's the feelies. But it really doesn't happen. So here, I want you to go back, and we'll end on this. I want you to go back to Matthew. Matthew chapter 2. The Magi uh, are coming. The Magi, when they find Jesus, verse 11, chapter 2 of Matthew, on coming to the house, it's funny, I asked Tamara, I was like, I'm talking on Christmas, like, what do you think, Tamara? Like, what's, what's really going on with Christmas? And uh, we've got four kids, right? And Tamara just says, man, I just can't imagine being pregnant and riding on a donkey all that way. It's just <laughs> totally different perspective than what I had. Like, I just wasn't there at all, you know. I guess you're right. That would be crazy, yeah. Um, so here they are with uh, Mary on coming to the house, they saw the child with the mother, and they bowed down, they kneeled down and worshipped him. This passage here actually led in, in the early church, and certainly later on in the eastern church, 
to a strong practice of kneeling in reverence to Christ. That they would kneel or that kneeling was a part of our spiritual disciplines, that we would worship by kneeling, that we would revere, that we would take a body posture um, that way in reverencing Christ. Now that got lost to the Western church and then certainly in the Protestant Reformation because of reacting to a lot of the things the Catholics did, that got lost. And I think that one of the things we look at when we see this is that Christ, if he's king, evokes either a response of a threat, that he's a threat to who we are, or it evokes a response where we want to be kneeling, we want to be submitting to him, and we want to be lying down like Eustace and saying, do what you got to do. Rip it off. Like, I know it's going to hurt, but just, just do it. I can't do it myself. And that when we come to Christ, we have a certain sort of reverence that we bring to that because he is sovereign. He is king. He's the prophet, the priest, and the king. And we don't just come to him and treat it like a little baby in a manger. I was going to subtitle this message, Jesus is more than a baby in a manger. We can look at the baby thing, right? at Christmas and say, isn't this nostalgic? Isn't this fun? Isn't this religious? Isn't this Christian? I enjoy this. And there's nothing wrong with that nativity scene. It's right here in the Bible. But like the Magi, we have to understand who that baby is. That he's the king. That he's king over all of us. Let's pray. Father God, I just pray that truth would matter enough to us that we would root it out. We'd root untruth out and falsehood in in the games. We would just be willing to see those things and turn them over to you. That we wouldn't just keep running, being apathetic. Father, we don't want to be Christmas posers. We don't want to teach bad theology to our kids. We don't want to teach bad theology to each other. I just pray that truth would matter enough for us to get the person of Jesus right. That we would have reverence, we would have respect, that we would have a godly fear and awe, that we would worship Jesus Christ, our King. That we would realize that any life apart from, from you or from Him, any, part, uh, any life outside of your will, Any life doing our own thing is going to be empty. It's going to be vanity. It's something we don't want. Father, I just pray that we would be able to desire to follow you. Just take and change us. Rip us open in Christ's name. Amen.